Good morning. So great to see everybody this morning. We have a beautiful Lord's Day, and we have so much to be thankful for, and it's just great to see everyone and several guests with us, and we're thankful for that, and it sure is great to look out and see Sister Margaret and Brother Sam. So great to see y'all here this morning. When I was in college, I would go home in the summer and spend my summers working in the paper mill in the metropolis of Clyetteville, Georgia just outside of Valdosta, Brother Larry. And uh, I was issued, when I would get there every summer, a yellow hard hat. And the low-level employees like myself, that was the color hard hat we got, was yellow. Uh, the color hard hat for supervisors, I don't think they called those in positions of leadership at the paper mill, if I remember right, managers, they called them supervisors. And the, so the supervisors wore white hard hats. And I quickly learned in just the three or four summers that I worked there at the paper mill that there was an us versus them mentality when it came to the yellow hats and the white hats. And uh, I learned on one occasion when a white hat, I'll just use you know, their terminology, had uh, made me do something as you know, just bottom of the totem pole summer worker that was a violation of union rules. It was a unionized paper mill where I worked, and I was not part of the union because I only worked there in the summertime, but there was a, a man that worked in the wood yard with me, and he had such a beef with this particular white hat that he was going to use his union influence on my behalf, not, I don't think, because he cared for me. I don't even remember what it was that I had been asked to do that was a violation of union rules. But he wanted, to, he wanted to go to my behalf, to the union head, to get this white hat in trouble because there was such a dysfunction that existed with some among the yellow hats and the white hats. So I started learning very quickly in life that you can be at a place where you're supposed to all be on the same team. You're all working for the same company. Your check is getting signed by the same people and yet there was an us versus them mentality. I spent a few years working at Sam's Club and I worked in the freezer cooler department for a while as a stalker. I worked in the uh, grocery section for a while as a forklift driver and stalker. And there's different departments. If you've worked in Sam's Club or warehouse, you know, you've got your, your freezer cooler and your grocery and your produce and your soft lines and your hard lines and your electronics. And we're all under the same roof working for the same company, our checks were all getting signed by Uncle Sam, Walton, and yet there was this us versus they mentality between different departments in Sam's Club, and sometimes there'd be a beef between, uh, usually the, the freezer cooler and the groceries, we like were gangs that formed some kind of alliance, I don't know what that traced back to, but it, we were usually an us, and then the them was the electronics guys because we thought they were a little soft. They didn't have to stock anything heavy, and, you know, we just kind of looked at that. But there was just all this us-them mentality. We're all under the same roof, apparently working for the same cause, the same employer, and yet we struggle, don't we, as human beings? And I have a feeling that my experiences were not unique to me. How many of you work in a place that has more than probably four employees, it might not even take four, for there to be within the employees an us versus them mentality. We have a tendency as human beings to divide ourselves 
We divide ourselves in all kinds of weird ways. And it's not unique to this country. It's not unique to our culture. It's not unique to our society. And you know this. Many of you know this better than me. I know Brother Barry sure knows this in some of the places that he's traveled and some of the parts of the world that he's been and us versus them mentality that exists even within people that are part of the same country. Many of you maybe know about some of the issues that uh, have been going on for I don't know how long in, in places like Northern Ireland. I found this, uh, I can't remember where the source of this is, but uh, it was someone writing, uh, a historian on Northern Ireland, and this is what he had to say. In Northern Ireland, everything is political, from your name to where you live, to the pub you drink in, and the drink you choose, to the accent and, and the language that you speak, to the football jersey you wear, the sports you play, the passports you hold. These politics are rigid and archaic, deeply rooted in the past, yet they continue to dominate the present. So you've got all these different ways that a small country like Northern Ireland pits themselves against one another. And instead of looking at themselves with this shared ethnicity, this, sh this shared nationality, instead of looking at themselves as, as one nation, as one group of people, as we are Northern Ireland, no, it's this us versus them. And there's been so much violence that has taken place through the years. The French Revolution of the late 1700s was that people outside of the nation of France that were invading France and causing issues, these were French that were fighting within themselves, amongst themselves, a lot of it fueled by caste divisions where the haves and the have-nots had pitted themselves against one another and you had much bloodshed and much violence. We won't belabor this point, but just a couple of others I want to share with you. Um, here's what Indians.org had to say about certain Indian tribes who hated one another so much that when the, the white settlers started coming in, even though they did not appreciate them coming in, even though they uh, had a hatred for those that were coming in, they hated some of their other tribes, some of the other tribes so much that notice what this historian had to say. When European explorers settled the continent, many tribes who once fought against each other were joined by a common enemy. However, some tribes were so at odds that they joined settlers in a fight against other colonists just to fight a little al or just to fight a tribe allied with the other side. For instance, during the French and Indian War, tribes chose to side with the British or French based on which tribe was on the opposition. Native American history is rich with such rivalries and alliances. So the hatred, some of these tribal rivalries, this tribal hatred was so deep that even though they had a common enemy, they would still align themselves with the enemy because they hated a tribe that allied itself with the enemy more than they hated the enemy itself. I don't know if any of you heard the story about... Um, my mind has drawn a total blank on this guy again. Thank you. You could even tell from the back who this guy was, Garth Brooks. Have y'all heard the story about the concert that he did in Detroit this past week? So he does a concert in Detroit, Michigan, and this is what he wore. And there was an outcry. I, I've read two or three different articles of his social media accounts getting blown up by people who were either high-fiving him via social media or just laying the hate down 
on him through social media because they thought this jersey represented Bernie Sanders and that he was making a political statement in wearing this jersey. He was performing this concert in Detroit, Michigan, the home of Barry Sanders, NFL Hall of Fame running back. Garth Brooks and, and Barry Sanders also went to the same college, Oklahoma State. And so Garth Brooks wore this jersey in a tribute to Barry Sanders, not Bernie Sanders. And yet there were so many people who were so inflamed in rage that he would be trying to make a political statement. They just assumed, oh, that's a Sanders jersey. He's and so there were some who were saying, good for you, Garth. I'm so glad you came out. And there were others who were saying, I'm never going to go to your concert again because we've got this us versus them mentality in this country that sometimes is so ingrained. I'm about to trigger a few folks. <laughs> I know some of you, you try not to be, but you're triggered right now. This picture I pulled from AL.com in an article that appeared, if you're not familiar with AL.com, it's basically the, the statewide internet newspaper for the state of Alabama. And so this picture was on an article that was posted by Josh Goodman or written by Josh Goodman and posted onto the website just a couple of days ago. And the title of the article is this, Tommy Tuberville tests loyalties for Donald Trump and Alabama football. This was not the first time an article of this topic was written on this particular website. There was another one written just a few days ago that was similar. And basically the gist of the, the article is this. In fact, I'll, I'll give you an exact statement that was made that Tuberville running for a Senate seat in the state of Alabama is testing tribalism within the state of Alabama, where there are some who they, they share a we mentality with Tuberville regarding his politics, but it's a they, them mentality when it comes to football. And so the article goes on to say that, that Tuberville is trying his best to overcome the obstacle of getting Alabama fans to vote for a former Auburn coach, even though there are many who share the, the same mentality socially, politically, I'm, I'm with you on this, I'm with you on this, but I just can't get past that orange and blue. That's, that's them. It's not us. We struggle, don't we? All of us struggle, I'm sure, in some way, in some part of our life. We struggle with an us versus them mentality. It's been going on, I guess, maybe ever since, shortly after. Well, maybe even the beginning of time, because I believe Cain and Abel, didn't they develop an us versus them mentality? At least Cain did. One of the more tragic events in Scripture is found in 2 Samuel chapter 2. And this is shortly after the death of Saul. And we know that well before Saul's death, God had picked David to be Saul's successor as king of Israel. Well, when Saul dies... His captain, his military captain, decides that he does not want David to be the next king of Israel. Abner, the captain of Saul's army, has been loyal to Saul, and he wants to continue to be loyal to the family of Saul. So Abner puts Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons, on the throne and acknowledges him as the one and true king of Israel. For the first seven years of David's reign, he was not living in Jerusalem. He was living in Hebron. 
And it's because of this division that existed between the people. You had this us-them mentality. You had Joab, who was the commander of David's army, and, and many uh, that aligned themselves with David that were loyal to him. They recognized him as the God-chosen king of Israel, but there were others who aligned themselves. And in fact, it was the majority of the nation. The majority of the tribes of Israel aligned themselves under Ishbosheth and Saul's army captain, Abner. And so you've got 2 Samuel chapter 2, and you've got um, some of David's men and some of Saul's men who find themselves on either side of, of a body of water. And one calls out to the other, let's have some of our men fight before us. And so 12 mighty warriors from David's side stand up, 12 mighty warriors from Saul's side stand up, and for no other reason than this us versus them mentality. They were all Israelites. They should have been all under this idea of we. We are brethren serving under the one true God. And yet they had divided themselves into camps. We, they, us, them, and these 12 mighty warriors, 12 on one side, 12 on the other, meet together at this body of water, and they simultaneously kill one another, where all 24 of them drop dead. Just senseless, meaningless, pointless violence and death. For no other reason than, I'm David, I'm Saul, I'm David, I'm Saul. Everyone was so upset because there's no clear winner. I guess they were looking at this as a contest for whose men are more valiant. And since all 24 fell down dead, well, everybody else was mad. We've got to settle this one way or the other. Before the day was over, when you get to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 2, 379 men are dead for no reason other than this us versus them mentality. Is this kind of mentality pleasing to God? There, there's an us versus them that exists between light and darkness. We understand that. But our battle is in the spiritual realm. Our battle is with the devil and his angels. Our battle doesn't need to be at the throats of one another. God doesn't want us dividing ourselves in any shape, form, or fashion. Now let's go to the passage that Landon read for us just a moment ago, Acts chapter 10. And we have, and I know you remember this very well, the chapter begins with Peter, who receives this very elaborate vision that appears to him three times. And what God, I believe, is doing in this vision is trying to prepare him for what he's about to be commissioned to do, and that is to go to a Gentile's home and share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with him. I have a pretty loose translation of uh, that particular passage, Acts chapter 10 and verse 28, where Peter says, You are well aware that it's against our law. The reason why I chose this particular translation, I believe in the, the translation that Landon read for us, it, it just says it is unlawful. Uh, you are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate or, or visit with a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Let me ask you a, real, a question real quick. Whose law? It's unlawful. I, I picked this translation for a reason because I, I think it addresses a very important matter in this passage. Did Peter refer to it as God's law? He referred to it as our law. This was not God's law. 
when Jesus walked on the earth, he allowed himself, even though he was master king, he was master and king not just of the people but of the law, but he allowed himself to be in subjection to the law. And yet in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 5, a centurion, a Gentile, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I have a servant at home who is grievously ill. And Jesus, in verse 6, I believe it is, says, I'll come to your house and heal him. So Jesus is offering to go into the home of a Gentile and heal the centurion's servant. Jesus at no point violated the law under which he allowed himself to be subjected to while he was on this earth in the flesh. And so this was not a violation of God's law to go into a Gentile home. This was a violation of Pharisaical law. This was a violation of one of the additional addendums that they had put on the original law of God given to Moses and then distributed to the people. And yet Peter, apparently up to this point in his life, had been an adherent to this man-made law. I've never said this phrase before, but is it possible? Maybe you've thought this before, that up until this time in Peter's life, that Peter was a racist. Is it possible that Peter struggled with racism? A lot of times we think about racism, we think about skin color, and, and, and that, that's part of it. But racism can also be based on ethnicity, nationality. And so here's Peter who allowed himself to be influenced by this man-made law, this law that the Pharisees had attached to, added to the law of God, the law of Moses, where he chose not to associate himself in any shape, form, or fashion by going into a home or fellowshipping with a non-Jew. And I believe that's why God went to elaborate measures to give Peter this vision to prepare his mind for the journey that he was about to make to a Gentile home. God has shown me. When do you think Peter, what, what showing do you think Peter is referencing here? Jesus had shown him this principle while he lived among them and walked with them, but I don't think it ever quite sunk in. And so you've got Peter who needed this elaborate showing by the Lord through this vision that I don't have a right to try to continue to live under this law with this mindset where I look at people of a diff different nationality, a different ethnicity, and I look at them as being less valuable to the Lord than me. Or I look at them as someone that I don't need to spend time associating with or fellowshipping with or spending time with or loving Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, after Peter asked Cornelius, why have you sent for me? And Cornelius provides for him uh, what has happened to him and, and the fact that he was told to send for Peter. And in chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, then Peter began to speak. Now I really understand, again, a loose translation, but I think it gets to the heart of, of what's going on here. Now I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him when did Peter come to this realization and this awareness you may be reading from a translation where it says for now I perceive gave you a little bit we won't get into the 
all the, the different definitions of that word that is translated perceive, or in this translation that's on the screen, now I really understand. But it seems to be, there's, there's an intimation in the Greek that this was something that Peter had just experienced. This understanding, this knowledge, is something that Peter had just then, that day, after receiving those visions before going to Cornelius' house, it finally sunk in, this lesson that God had been trying to teach his disciples. Why would he send them into a Samaritan village to buy food? See, one of the things that the Pharisees had commanded Jews during the time of Christ that was a command in violation of or was not a part of the law of Moses was you don't buy anything, purchase any goods from a non-Jew. And yet God, Jesus in the flesh, while being submissive to the law of Moses, not violating its command, had no problem sending his disciples, John 4, into a Samaritan village to buy food. Why? Because it was not a violation of God's command. It was a violation of pharisaical, man-made doctrine. So Jesus was continually trying to get this point home, but it, like a lot of things, wasn't Jesus, while he was in the flesh, continually trying to get the point home to his disciples that he had come here for a specific purpose, and that purpose would culminate with his death, burial, and resurrection? Didn't he try to hammer that point home? And up until the time that it actually happened, they still didn't understand. And up until the time that he actually ascended back into heaven to be with the Father in Acts chapter 1, they still didn't understand. So there's a lot of things that Jesus tried to hammer home that it, it never fully sunk in until a later time. And so Peter, uh, the other apostles, those who had walked with Christ while he was in the flesh, they'd been shown this, they'd been modeled it by the Lord, but it had not been sunk in because there was just this long-standing, deep, th this deep hatred that existed between Jews and non-Jews where Jews looked at non-Jews as being of less value in the eyes of God and not worth the time of associating with or spending time or especially showing compassion to. We did a lesson a while back, I think Matthew chapter 18, the Canaanite woman, you remember who had the severely demon-possessed daughter? And we were talking about the ways in which Jesus tested her faith, but I think it was more a test of the apostles than it was a test of that woman. And you remember one of those four tests that Jesus gave the, the woman that he was also testing his apostles at the same time was when she was pleading for help, this Canaanite, this Gentile woman for her severely demon-possessed daughter, one of the things Jesus said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And this occasion comes well after the occasion in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus had offered to go into a Gentile man, a centurion's home, and heal his servant. Jesus has already modeled through his behavior his willingness to show compassion to and care for Gentiles. And so when Jesus made this statement, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, he was not just testing the endurance and the faith of that woman. He was testing his apostles. Have you learned anything from what I have modeled to you so far? Have you learned anything about how I am teaching you that I have love for every human being? Yeah, I'm spending the bulk of my time with the Jewish nation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Luke 24, 47. Because of the promises made to Abraham, that was the order in which things went. But while Jesus was walking in the flesh, he did not 
to choose to never offer any help or assistance to a non-Jew. He had modeled that behavior. He had shown that behavior. I think the only reason why Jesus made that statement on that occasion to the Canaanite woman, are any of these folks going to speak up and say, well, Lord, actually, we have seen you help a Gentile before. We have seen you show love and compassion to Gentile before. This woman has a daughter severely demon-possessed. I, I think the Lord was testing these apostles. Are one of you going to show me that you have learned anything from what I've been teaching up to this point? Are one of you going to stand up and show a little love and compassion for this woman who is so vexed in her spirit because of the condition of her daughter? And she is so desperately, this loving mother, seeing her daughter in this difficult situation, suffering from demon possession, and she's wanting help. For, this is a mother wanting help for her daughter. She's not come to the Lord asking for some personal favor. She's come on behalf of her daughter. And the Lord, I think, is just waiting for one of these apostles to speak up and say, Lord, I think we, you've shown us you're willing to help Gentiles. This woman desperately, her daughter desperately needs some help. I think he was allowing just one of them an opportunity to show that they'd learned something about the fact that God loves everyone the same. So Peter began to speak. Now I really understand. I think it finally dawns. Now, is Peter completely cured of this? Well, the other passage that was read for us this morning, we see that there's going to be times where I think Peter continues to struggle with this ingrained mentality, this mentality that he was probably taught from birth, that we as Jews are special because of who we are. We mentioned in Wednesday night class a couple of Wednesday nights ago, what the Jews often struggled with in Scripture was they confused these two words, who and what. The Jews thought they were special in the eyes of God because of who they were. We are blood descendants of Abraham. That makes us special. That makes us better. That makes us more important than everybody else. What they didn't understand is they were special because of what they were. When they allowed themselves to submit to the one true God, to have nothing to do with the idols of the pagan lands around them, to acknowledge that one true God and him alone, to serve him, to follow his word, then they were blessed. But when they chose to embrace the idols of the pagan lands, when they chose to do, uh, participate in all the pagan practices of the uh, idolatrous nations around them, were they treated any different than when God would pronounce judgment on those pagan nations? What did he say to them? Through Moses, near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, those blessings and cursings that are there near the end of the chapter, he said, as long, Moses is speaking to the people, and he says, as long as you submit to God, as long as you serve him, follow him, obey him, love him, your enemies will come at you one direction and they'll scatter seven ways. But let me tell you something, if you choose to be like the, the nations around you, if you choose to reject me, if you choose to embrace idolatrous practices, if you don't put me first, then your enemies are going to come at you one direction and you'll be scattering seven ways. There was no difference in the punishment and the ramifications and the consequences of not being a follower of God, whether it was a Jew or whether it was a pagan, a Gentile. And so the Jews were blessed when they acknowledged God as their one true God. They were cursed. They suffered when they chose not to. Those in the pagan world, when they chose not to acknowledge the God of Israel, they were punished. They were cursed. When they chose to acknowledge the God of Israel, as in the case of Rahab, as in the case of Ruth, 
Weren't they blessed just like as if they had Jewish blood, Abraham's blood running through their veins? It was never a matter of who. It was always a matter of what. And yet Peter has struggled because he's been taught differently, as had most of the Jews that were alive during his day. And there's still a segment of that mindset that exists among the Jewish community even to this very day. Just saw a commercial last night, Wendy and I, it was a commercial about helping Jews, biological Jews in Ukraine. And they said, God blesses those who bless the Jewish nation. As if, so they were wanting us to send money to these people who were in desperate financial circumstances, these Jews in desperate financial circumstances in Ukraine. And, and here was the, the point at the end. God blesses those who bless the Jewish nation. Well, God blesses those who bless others regardless whether they're the Jewish nation or not. <laughs> There's no special blessing that comes from blessing a particular group of people, a particular race of people, or a particular ethnicity, or a particular nationality. God doesn't give extra blessings. Oh, you, you provided a blessing to my favorites, so I'll give you an extra blessing for that. What Peter was finally realizing, though it had been modeled, though it had been communicated, it, it took that vision of that sheep with those animals, clean and unclean, it, it took that happening three times, and he starts putting two and two together. Mm, I've got it now. Now I understand. I perceive. I, I have now grasped. I, I, I've got it, Lord. Thank you. It took you hitting me over the head with a hammer a few times, but I've got it. God is no respecter of persons. Now I know in Galatians chapter 3, the other passage that was read for us this morning, a lot of the, the issues, the trouble, the conflict, by no means am I downplaying the uh, problem with the Judaizers trying to impose parts of the law of Moses on, onto those Gentile Christians. And I know a lot of the, the issues and the problems and the motivations of what was going on in, in the book of Galatians is in large part due to that. This, um, this value that Jewish Christians were still placing on this obsolete, outdated, no longer in effect law. But I believe some of it was fueled. When you read Galatians and you get to Galatians chapter 3, where this passage on the screen is given to us, you have a journey that you go through, the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul to write that letter, where it seems to be that a lot of this is fueled by this us-them mentality. This Jew-Greek mentality, this Jew-Gentile mentality. I believe maybe there was a little less compassion, a little less love, a little less mercy shown, not just because we love the law of Moses and we want to make sure that you in, incorporate circumcision and some of these other things they were still holding on to from the old law, but there was an issue still in the minds of so many of those Jews Christ has broken down that wall of separation. You remember in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul says, I had, to, I had to get in Peter's face and rebuke him because he would eat with the Gentiles, the uncircumcised Gentile Christians. He'd have no fe uh, problem fellowshipping with them, spending time with them. But when the Judaizers would come in, those who were still struggling with this us versus them mentality when it came to aspects of the old law and circumcision, and so Peter would withdraw himself and no longer eat with those 
Greek Christians, those uncircumcised brothers in Christ. Even so much that, and I think Paul was shocked by this, you can almost see the shock in, in his writing, even so Barnabas was caught up in your hypocrisy. Man, you, you got Barnabas to go along with you on this. Every other time we read about Barnabas in Scripture, he's always making the right call, doing the right thing, saying the right thing, but it was such a problem, such an issue, that, that Peter would withdraw himself from sitting with these Grecian brethren and pull Barnabas. Barnabas, we can't, you know, a bunch of those Judaizers just came in. You know how they feel about the uncircumcised. we got to sit over here with them, act like we don't know those guys. This years after Acts chapter 10. So Peter is still struggling. And so Paul, in this beautiful letter, gets to the culmination of the point that he wants to make. This inspired point from the Holy Spirit. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female. For we are all one in Christ Jesus. Coming on the heels of what he said in verse 27 of chapter 3, for as many as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what is the effect? What, what are the ramifications of this baptism, this putting on of Christ? Well, here's what happens. When we become children of God, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, all this we, they, us, them, that's my tribe, those are my people, that's not my tribe, those are not my people, I am of more value than you are, my status is of more relevance in society and to God than yours is, all of that, all those ways that we try to divide ourselves go out the window. When we are baptized into Christ, and begin from that day forward to wear him as our Savior. There, there's now, look at what the Holy Spirit through Paul does. He addresses some of the biggest ways that we choose to divide ourselves. Some of the biggest camps that we fall susceptible to with this us, them, we, they mentality. He deals with racism, with nationality, with ethnicity. He says, listen, when you're in Christ, it's not... You're this tribe, I'm that tribe. You're this color, I'm that color. We're of equal value. We're on the same playing field. There's no difference. We're all loved equally by God, and we should all love one another equally as well. Whether or not that person shares our skin color, our ethnicity, our, ethnicity, our nationality, or not. So here's the, the Holy Spirit addressing three of the main ways that we divide ourselves. Through, through race, nationality, ethnicity, through class, socioeconomic status. The Holy Spirit through James addressed this. When you see people come into your assembly and they are dressed in such a way where you realize, okay, this, this person is of means. This person has some money. And you show favoritism to that person more so than the one who comes in in rags. It was an issue in the first century. As we've talked about before, the Lord never wasted his time when he inspired these men to write these words that we have, telling them in writing what we have to write things down that come naturally to us. Nowhere in Scripture, we, I've used this illustration before, nowhere in Scripture you have a verse that says, make sure you inhale and exhale a certain amount of times every 60 seconds in order to further your physical life. We don't even have to think about it, right? How many of you have been thinking about this morning? Oh, man, have, I, have I inhaled at least five times in the last 60 seconds? 
oh, I better breathe real quick. No. God doesn't spend any time giving us instructions in Scripture that come naturally, that we're just going to do whether we're told to do or not, that, that are instinctive. When God gives us things to do in Scripture, usually it is because it does not come naturally. It's not something we're going to do voluntarily without being instructed properly to do so. And so there were issues with favoritism. There were issues with division. When we start talking about division, we're, we've not even gotten, we don't have time to get into this morning, the ways that the New Testament church, the first century church in Corinth, were dividing themselves. The, what we see today in the denominational world, all these divisions, all this us, they, I'm this hyphenated Christian, I'm that hyphenated Christian. We, we don't even have time to get into all the, the problems and the issues and the harm that, that has done to the cause of Christ. No male nor female. In other words, God does not view one as more important than the other. There is still, God's not blurring the lines of roles. Were there still Jews and Greeks after this was written? Yes. Were there still males and females? Yes. God is not just evaporating the lines that exist. He's evaporating the lines of inequality that existed. Not of role or you all know what the relationship was between males and females during the time of Christ, where they were literally viewed, the females were, in many ways, as second-class citizens. It's, I believe it was very intentional by the Lord to appear first to a female when he was resurrected from the dead. And to one female, do you know how much weight her testimony carried concerning the resurrected Lord in the eyes of most males during the time of Christ? Zip. When the women came back to tell the apostles, we saw the empty tomb, we saw angels in there, with the, the Lord's burial clothes neatly folded beside them, they told us he's resurrected and gone into the city. And what does it say? The apostles' reaction was what they said. It seemed to them as what idle tales. They might as well have been talking about Jack and the Beanstalk. They put no, no confidence, no thought in part because of this, this mindset that existed and still in many ways exists in the Middle East to this very day, the inequality between male and female. And so the Holy Spirit, through Paul, addresses some of the main ways in which we choose to divide ourselves, and he says, listen, in Christ Jesus, we are all one. Let me share with you just a couple of comments that I thought just worded the things we can take away from Galatians 3 and verse 28. This comes from Meyer's commentary. After you have thus put on Christ, the distinctions of your various relations of life apart from Christianity have vanished. From the standpoint of this new condition, they have no further viability any more than if they were not to have ever existed. God just blows up these lines of inequality, these lines of us versus them, the camps that we choose to divide ourselves into, he blows them away when we put him on in baptism. In Ellicott's commentary, he said this, this verse, the neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male nor female, this verse marks the immense stride made by Christianity in sweeping away the artificial distinctions which had been the bane of the ancient world, and aren't they still to this very day? 
We just looked at a few examples in introducing this topic this morning of the ways that we divide ourselves. Some of them are trivial and, and silly and ridiculous. Some of them have to do with ethnicity, nationality, skin color, all, all these ways that we, that is what the world does. The world chooses to divide. The devil loves that because a house divided is against itself, cannot stand. So if he can keep the human race in conflict with itself, always putting itself in various camps, parties, we, they, us, them, having this mentality, then the devil knows that he can be very effective in what he does because division leads to weakness, and weakness is the devil's playground. Christianity is sweeping away the artificial distinctions which had been the bane of the ancient world and prevented any true feeling of brotherhood springing up in it. See, the world cannot produce a situation, an environment that leads to unity, that leads to oneness, that leads to it's no longer we, they, us, them, it's us. We're all one in Christ Jesus. The world does not produce an environment that allows that mindset to take place. Only Christ. Christianity, at one stroke, established the brotherhood and abolished the distinctions. That's, that's what the blood of Christ does. This should be inside this building, we know there's nothing holy about this building, but the people that are represented here, followers of Jesus Christ, this should be the most unified group of people on the face of the earth. When we walk through that door, when we see one another, there never should be us, they, them, we. It's all us. We should be the most colorblind people in the world. We should be uh, the ones who focus on ethnicity, on nationality, on race, th those should be of no consequence. Socioeconomic status, all the ways that we choose to divide ourselves, all those things should go out the window at the foot of the cross. We stand level, all on the same equal footing at the foot of the cross. And once we become children of God, man, isn't it a relief? Because, you know, it, it, it gets tiring mentally when you're always, I mean, look at our, look at our current culture and the ways that we've chosen to, to polarize ourselves, particularly with it, when it comes to politics. I mean, there's so much hatred uh, I saw a, a post from a Christian brother. I think he's a minister somewhere up in Virginia. And, and he said, I wonder if I have got brethren that cannot love me because of the love that they have for a particular politician and that love for that politician exceeds their love for me as their brother in Christ. We can't let these kinds of things in the Lord's church divide us. It's not a, I'm an Alabama fan, you're an Auburn fan. I'm, a, uh, I'm from European descent, or I'm from, uh, you know, I'm from the Middle East, or I'm from Africa, or wherever. I'm a hyphenated person. I'm in this particular camp, this particular tribe. Jesus says, stop that. Stop that. Be a light to the world where you can be the one place and I love what Ellicott had to say in his commentary on Galatians chapter 3 verse 28. It's the only place that exists where oneness can truly be achieved. 
because the world does not provide. These politicians we've got nowadays are continually trying to divide us into various camps and pit us as we should, we, we have this common connection through Noah. We all came from the same family. And so we have that commonality. And we have this, this commonality as Christians that we're all brethren. That's what Paul went on to say. Man, look at what we have. Because we are now wearing Jesus Christ, we are now all children of Abraham. Whether you got Jewish blood running through your veins or not, we're all joint heirs according to the promise. Adopted children of God, all level at the foot of the cross. And we've constantly got society and culture, and we've got our politicians, we've got leaders, we've got various people, this us, they, we, them. Let's be different. Let's be what God calls on us to be. And stop falling into these temptations of dividing ourselves into camps, whether they're trivially based on some sports team we follow or blood running through our veins or the color of our skin, we're all one in Christ Jesus. If you're not a child of God this morning, then you are missing out on the opportunity to be in that place, in that environment that provides oneness. And it's that place that provides a promise. A promise of being a partaker of the inheritance reserved for the Son of God. We get to share in that inheritance. One of the promises that Jesus, and I've used this illustration before, Brother Larry, I know you like this one because I know you have a special chair in your house. <coughs> one of the promises that's given to one of the seven churches in Asia, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus says, I'll let you sit with me in my chair, in my throne. You've allowed that, we've, we've talked about this before, have you allowed that to sink in? I mean, one of the reasons why, you know, the spiritual world is eternal, it's going to take a long time for every one of us to get a turn. But every one of us are going to get a turn. There's going to come a time in heaven for all of us that are there where Jesus is going to come and say, hey, it's your turn. Come sit with me in my throne. You get to hang out with the Lord in his seat, not on the other side of the room, not in a chair two feet lower, not in a, a rickety old chair with one of the legs about to fall off. No, you get to sit with me in my throne. And all of us, regardless of what our status was in this life, we have an opportunity to spend eternity with the Lord. And hopefully, by submitting to his will, all of us will, we're going to get a chance every last one of us to sit with him in his throne. You only get that opportunity if you're there. It's a prepared place for a prepared people. By faith, this morning, if you've not already done so, you can repent of your sins, confess Jesus Christ as Lord, be immersed into Christ. That's what led into Paul prefaced what he said about this oneness with what he said right before, for as many of you have been baptized into Christ and put on Christ, that's what enables this unification process to take place. Not just one another, but with our Father in heaven. Be baptized into Christ. Have your sins washed away. As Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 says, the reenaction of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. You die to your old self. You're buried to your sins. You come out a new creation. 
ready to walk in newness of life. If you've done that, that you've left your first love, you need encouragement, you need prayer. Maybe it's not a sin issue that you're dealing with. Maybe you just need encouragement from your brethren. Whatever your need is, if we can help you in any way, please come as together we stand and sing.